Well, good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see you this morning. I know that there will be some people running around Cambridge this very moment in the Cambridge Half Marathon, so blessing on them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope they make it. It's quite a big, big day to do that, isn't it? We are speaking this morning on Jesus, our better hope. And in chapter 7, which we started two weeks ago, uh, the writer explains the huge shift that is taking place from the ancient Israelites' high priests of the Old Covenant to Jesus becoming high priest in the New Covenant. So our reading continues at verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 7. Here goes. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe had ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I read that passage, the question that springs to mind is, what does it mean for Jesus to be high priest? And I've spotted three key aspects. Firstly, perfection. The previous Levitical priesthood, uh, which was part of the Old Testament, did not attain perfection. 
And that's made clear by that rhetorical question that we started with in verse 11. Another way was necessary to bring about the completeness of God's plan. As Tom Wright says, God's intention for the whole created world is that God is working to bring his world to perfection and doing what is necessary to make it complete. So the perfection that's been talked about here isn't simply moral perfection. It is the completion of the whole world. The Levitical priests and their work pointed forward to this eventual perfection, but they couldn't, by themselves, bring it into reality. So, where the Levitical high priest had to find an animal animal without blemish to sacrifice, Jesus gave himself. He was fully human, and as we heard in chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So he himself was that perfect sacrifice described in verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins because he was without sin. Yeah? And then for the sins of the people. Jesus sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So perfection is one of the key aspects of Jesus as high priest as the great priest. The next aspect is power. Jesus came in, he came in not on ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, as verse 16 says. In the past, there was something good passing from generation to generation, but this has been superseded by something much better, resurrection power, death completely defeated. And that leads to the third key aspect, permanence. In verse 23, the writer is quite pragmatic there, isn't he? He said there were many previous priests, but the reason for that was that death prevented them from carrying on. They couldn't continue in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his is a permanent priesthood. And in this, There is a fulfillment of the words spoken in Psalm 110, which is quoted twice in our reading. This is a warrior psalm that proclaims Jesus as priest and king forever. So perfection, power, and permanence, that's what it means for Jesus to be high priest. What difference does that make for the people the writer is addressing and for us now? Well, the key is that all of this leads to a better hope by which we draw near to God, as described in verse 18 and 19. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, we have to take our minds back to, we have to kind of go back to when this was written, to the people that were listening to this. They were from a Jewish heritage, and they'd become Christians. So what has been stated here, that you can draw near to God, is completely mind-boggling or revolutionary for those first readers of this letter. Cast your mind back with me to the beginning of Luke's gospel, 
with the account of Zechariah in the temple. Access there is restricted to the one tribe drawn by lot from a selected few to go into the temple to burn incense, to make the sacrifice, to offer prayers. All the assembled worshippers are praying outside. So that's like everyone here out in Mill Road and I'm here. And I'm the only one that can come to this place, into this bit. What Jesus has done has changed that completely. All the people outside can come right in, can draw really right up to the cross of Christ. There's no separation. I mean, it is completely revolutionary for the people at that time to have that being said to them. You can draw near to God. You can draw right up near to God. That is a completely better hope. It's not that the law and the previous thing was wrong. It was good. What Jesus has done is so much better. And that's the reality that we live in now. And I wondered to myself, oh, have I just become a bit accustomed to that, that I can just rock up and draw, draw close to Jesus at any point? You know, Zechariah had to go through a massive amount of preparation to be ready, to be drawn by lot, to go in. What's my preparation like as I come to God? That's something that I want to try and take more seriously during Lent. That reality of what Jesus has won for me, that I can come that close. So this is huge for those first readers, and it's huge for us now. We can draw close to God because of what Jesus has done. It's extraordinary. Something to be hugely thankful for. Each person can draw near to God, not through a human intermediary. Now we have direct access to God through Jesus. And not only that, Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenant, as verse 22 says. And it's the only time that this word guarantor, translated as guarantor, is used in the New Testament. And it has that meaning of this is Jesus is our surety. He's an assurance, not simply of the future, but in the present. Our guarantor is one who knows our need, having lived amongst us, but he now sits in God's presence as our guarantor. The Christians that the writer is writing to in the book of Hebrews were persecuted Christians. And I want to bring a quote here from Raymond Brown, one of the commentators that's informing our teaching in this series. And he, uh, in this quote uh, that I'm going to read, unpacks a number of the betters that are stated in the book of Hebrews. Better is used several times. It's used twice in this passage, better hope and better covenant. And this is uh, what Raymond Brown says in terms of the writer writing to these persecuted Christians. Motivated by deep pastoral concern, the writer dreads the thought that some of the members of this church might go back to something inferior, temporary and partial, when in Christ there is a better hope, a better covenant with better promises. The once-for-all offering of Christ's life is a better sacrifice. 
In time of persecution, some lost their homes and property, but rejoiced that in heaven that they had a better possession. They set their hope not on those earthly material things which might be plundered by aggressive neighbors. Their eyes were fixed on a better country. Even if their hard struggle with sufferings exceeds verbal abuse and physical affliction so that they are compelled to lay down their lives for Christ, still they would not be distressed. They know that in him they will rise again to a better life. When they are up against opposition and violence, their confidence is not in their material goods or moral effort or even their spiritual integrity. They rely entirely on the blood of Christ, which has something far better to say than Abel's blood. It speaks graciously to them of security, purification, pardon, and access. So they are supremely content. So this was spoken to Christians who in Hebrews were persecuted. They were fixing their eyes on the better hope in the guarantee. And as I read that quote from Raymond Brown, my, my thoughts immediately went to our persecuted sisters and brothers in the Ukraine. We're praying for the people of the Ukraine. We're praying for that nation. And within that, there are many Christians in that country. And in this time of extreme persecution, they, I'm hearing stories of them looking to the better hope and stepping out into the better hope. In the midst of all the war, the horrendous evil of death and destruction, they are holding out that better hope. Uh, we heard in the very first Zoom prayer meeting we had for the Ukraine that churches are training people in first aid and those people in those churches are having a reason to stay, to tend to people. I've heard of miracles like a group of attacking soldiers getting completely lost. And most recently I've heard that in the midst of it all there's a hunger for the Bible. People wanting the Bible. And churches are getting Bibles out to folks around them. The Bible is full of stories of the reality of God working, even, you could say especially, in the darkest places of life, to bring life, light, freedom, and hope. And what I heard this week is that churches are distributing Bibles, and they're even praying that they have the opportunity not only to share them with, give those Bibles to Ukrainians, but to get those Bibles to Russian soldiers as well. They are taking that better hope and sharing it. It's incredibly moving to hear what the people of God are doing in Ukraine. Let's just take a moment to pray for them in a, in a moment of silence. Lord, thank you for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Continue to give them courage and fill them with your love to cast out the fear. Continue, Lord, in the work that they're doing in your name. Amen. For us this morning, how do we understand this better hope?
I was listening to a speaker called Glenn Packiam uh, earlier on this week. And when he was talking about hope, he was saying that the question that he has coming to him from people is saying, tell me a reason to believe that it's going to end well with hope. Tell me a reason to believe that it's going to end well. And we have a story, God's story, that started in good with God saying that it was good and ends in a glorious way with revelation where every tear is wiped away, where there will be no more suffering, no more sickness, sadness, or Satan. And that's the hope of the early church when persecuted. When life was on the ropes, there's a new creation, there's resurrection. It's not that we're lifted out, airlifted out of the world. No, we're in the world and God comes and makes all things new. That, that's why we can say with certainty that it is all going to end well because it is in God's hands. And he's given that future hope of, res- of revelation that's been won for us by Jesus. And in the midst of all of this, right in the middle of this story, is Jesus the Messiah who suffered. We have a suffering God right in the middle of the story who weeps with us, who stepped into human flesh. So what we see from our passage is that Jesus is able to do the work of a priest, representing humanity to God because he was human. He suffered, died, was buried and rose again and and therefore he's able to carry on permanently. He's still going and part of what he continues to do is described in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That coming to God is that repetition of that drawing near to God that I talked about in verse 19. And save completely is to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save to the very worst parts of ourselves. Jesus' death and resurrection has saved us. We're justified in Christ. Dane Ortland in this great book, Gentle and Lowly, says about the justification that we have. It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into the honest acknowledgement that we never will. Jesus sacrificed for our sins once and for all. That's a done deal and never changing. So we live in the light of that. We're justified in Christ. But we know that we continue to sin, don't we? I certainly do. You know, it starts with things like we assess performance and then it builds up to thinking, oh, well, we could do much better than that. And then we start to criticize and then we judge others. When Jesus specifically says, don't, But Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Dane Ortland again. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is that moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. So Jesus' intercession for us is applying that once-for-all reality into our daily lives. The Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin. We come, we confess it, we're forgiven. 
And I love this quote from Dean Auckland. Think of it this way about the intercession of Christ. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dispersed, dissipated now that he's in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down, settling back once more into kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as ever it was in it, his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. Remember, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed for the people around him when he was on earth. He's doing exactly the same for us here and now. So what's our response? Well, when we pray for, the, for peace in the war in Ukraine, we're joining our prayers with Jesus. We have Jesus praying on our behalf, praying against the war, against sin and evil, bringing in justice and truth. As we pray against it, we're joining our prayers with Jesus. So we continue to pray. Personally, you may not be facing outright persecution, but you know that you are under pressure for your faith. So when you pray, know that Jesus is interceding for you. Imagine him praying in the room next to you, saving you completely. And our response is to take this better hope to other people. And that's one of the reasons I'm excited about prayer walking for Lent. You know, as we go to our workplaces, our schools, as we walk around our neighborhoods, as we go to places where we exercise, when we go to our coffee shops, let's be praying, let's be taking these uh, prayer walking uh, guides that we've got in the square to pick up. And what we're praying for is we're praying from Isaiah 52 verse 7, we're proclaiming peace and salvation and we're worshipfully saying as we pray, our God reigns. We're going to gather around the communion table now. We're going to come putting our hope in Jesus, that better hope. We're going to come confessing our utter, utter reliance on Jesus, remembering his one perfect and permanent sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's come to Jesus, our better hope. Amen.